The information expressed in the following podcast is intended for educational purposes only and was created by and belongs solely to Believe Limited and the Flow podcast and does not necessarily reflect the views of our sponsors. Please speak to your healthcare provider before making any medical decisions. Hi, I'm Jessica, and welcome to Flow. I'm here with Sarah Watson, sex therapist, and Jack Teeter, Regional Director of Government Affairs for Planned Parenthood, podcasting in from Denver. And yes, we all want to know, how's your flow? Welcome once again to Flow. We start off Flow with a quick check-in to normalize the reality of menstruation. I am right there in the middle presently. That's where I'm in my flow. Not yet PMSing, post-ovulation, just on the ride of my hormones. Sarah, how are you? How's your flow? Same. I was like trying to figure it out. And I was like, yeah, luteal, hanging, nothing crazy, which is kind of nice considering. (laughs) So good. Yeah. Good. Jack, how's your flow? Uh, Gone again. I've been on testosterone for... Oh, I don't know, maybe six or seven years and went off of it recently to do IVF egg retrieval with my spouse, which was weird that it came back. And then I went back on testosterone and now it's gone again. Oh, I'm fascinated. Can I ask a question about the, like, was it extreme? There was the return extreme. I know. I was like, were you (laughs) expecting me to say that to answer that question? I love it though. Tell us about it. What happened? Yeah. So testosterone use and, you know, people with ovaries, I'm a trans man, just sort of puts your ovaries to sleep, puts them into suspended animation. And most people, though maybe not all people, stop menstruating when that happens. So I went several years without even thinking about it. And then when my spouse and I decided that we wanted to kind of get rolling on the IVF process, we decided that we wanted to use my eggs. And so I stopped taking testosterone and everything just sort of turned back on. And then I did all the IVF drugs and all that kind of stuff. And then I went back on testosterone and everything sort of went back into hibernation. Wow. Okay. And so was the hormonal shift, was it extreme for it to return? The the physical aspects of it that we love to talk about here on Flow? Oh yeah, it was terrible. Hormones are a hell of a drug. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was reflecting on that a lot. I think it makes me feel weird that things that I think of as essential components of my personality or things I really like about myself are impacted by the levels of any given hormone on any given day. I like to think that I'm, you know, I'm that my personality is like a like a like a bright shiny thing of stardust that I'm in soul that it's that's this kind of stuff. But I think hormones hormones impact our lives in really deep ways, right? And so yeah, I was thinking about that a lot. There's a fascinating episode of This American Life from more than 10 years ago about testosterone. And I actually went back and listened to it recently. I had heard it 10 years ago and had remembered hearing it as like a like a pre-transitioning trans person. They talk a lot about they interview a man who had a pituitary tumor that caused his body to produce no testosterone at all. Mm. And he was describing this feeling of sort of blankness in his brain, which I thought was really interesting, right? Because everyone has testosterone in their bodies. You know, men and women both have Mm -hmm. testosterone in their bodies, but the shift was very, it felt very strange. Yeah. Yeah. We talked about in in season one, back in season one, we talked about how hormones are messengers within the body. And so when we communicate with our own body by absorbing different hormones to help impact how we have our menstrual experience, we're on a very like ride of self-knowledge. The communicators within ourselves are talking to us loudly, Mm -hmm. um, both in times of menstrual flow and in times of shifting hormones. Mm -hmm. 
It's going to be strange now that I'm going to shift directly to abortion. I'll take a step back and say that IVF is also an extreme experience. Thank you for being open and sharing about it. Yeah, thank you. On the road to family planning, which is something in your work with the amazing organization Planned Parenthood, on the road to family planning, abortion may be part of that road for certain people. Is that fair to say? Where we know that on the road to family planning, abortion yes, is part totally. of that conversation. And we're going to dive into more about why it's important, whether or not you are on the road to family planning or on the road to having an abortion, why it matters now for everyone to care about the bans going on. We're going to dive right in right after this quick break. This ad is brought to you by Von Vendi, Von Willebrand Factor Recombinant. My name is Nicole, and my deciding factor is making my voice heard. To hear the backstory, drop by Von Vendi. That's V-O-N-V-E-N-D-I dot com slash patient dash stories. Hi, welcome back to Flow. Once again, you're here with Sarah, Jack, and Jessica. Jack, you do amazing work with Planned Parenthood. Can you tell us about your involvement with reproductive justice? Thanks for that question. Before we start, it feels important to sort of differentiate between reproductive health rights and and justice, the differences between those terms matters, right? So first we've got reproductive health care, right? Those are groups focused on providing the health care. So think groups like Planned Parenthood, independent abortion providers, your local health, public health department, right? Title 10 clinics, OBGYNs, those folks are all providing reproductive health care. So I think in this moment in our movement, right? Those folks in particular are really concerned about the provision of care, training and hiring providers, whether there's enough infrastructure, whether there are enough health centers, how to make sure people are getting the the care that they need by directly providing that care, right? And then there's reproductive rights. So that's the right to access reproductive health care. Think legal. It's the work of attorneys, policymakers, groups like the ACLU who fight in state Supreme Courts and the U.S. Supreme Court. And for a long time, that was really the focus of the national narrative, right? The question was, is abortion legal or is abortion not going to be legal? And then I think growing out of a frustration that the idea is that it's just about the right to choose, there's the reproductive justice movement, which is led by and for women of color, really connects reproductive health to other intersecting social issues like immigrant justice, environmental justice, economic justice, education access, and we know that indigenous women, women of color, and trans people have always fought for reproductive justice, but the term was really invented in the 1990s by a group of black women who came together in Chicago, sort of in, in preparation for the International Conference on Population and Development in Cairo, and also really in opposition to the Clinton administration's proposed universal health care plan at the time. So this movement comes because despite theoretical legal access to abortion, right, the ability to exercise real reproductive decision-making is not just about whether abortion is legal, and it's not just about abortion, right? It's about justice. It's about the ability to decide if and when to have kids and to raise them in safe and healthy environments, right? That's all to say that my involvement with reproductive justice, I think I'm an ally to reproductive justice as a, as a white trans person. I came to work in reproductive health care as someone who had worked in politics and policy since I was in college, and someone who... I've been a Planned Parenthood patient. I started taking testosterone at the Planned Parenthood clinic in Denver and cared deeply about health access and health equity. And yeah, started working at Planned Parenthood in 2018 as the political director at the time. Can you all hear the piano upstairs? I just heard a moment of it. It was beautiful. It's a baby banging on a piano or by housemates. I'm going to go and tell them to stop doing it. 
forgot to bring up that you guys might be family. I feel like that should be part of the episode. We should have <laughs> introed with that. How you guys are going to go find out if you're cousins? Our yeah. secretly cousins. Secretly, not so secret. Hopefully. Cool. I'm glad I asked about the piano. The piano is like directly above my head and the baby is super sweet and wants to bang on it. And most of the time it's like, oh, that's so cute. And I was like, I bet. It's an old house, thin ceilings. My spouse and I live in a house with um, another couple, two of our friends that we all got together and they have a 15 month old, which is awesome. So much fun. I love that. It takes a village and you're like living in a village and I love that. It's so great. All right, back to abortion. But quite frankly, yeah. Okay. What do you say to the advertised idea that abortion is still accessible by all, for all, by mail? That's not necessarily the case. We know that as of today, which is September 16th. Do you want yeah. me to say that? The day we're recording? Right. Um, sure, yeah. we, we know that as of today, there are 13 states where abortion is outright illegal. And there's an additional 13 states or so where abortion is virtually impossible to access through things like a six-week ban. And so certainly it's possible for people to access medication abortion through some websites on the internet that might mail from international pharmacies into any state in the country. But the reality of what we are seeing right now and what we were seeing before Roe is that abortion is inaccessible to lots and lots of people in this country, particularly women of color, particularly young people, particularly immigrants and undocumented folks. And these barriers to access look like lots of things, right? So abortion is illegal in Texas right now. And Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains is in Colorado, New Mexico, Southern Nevada, and Wyoming. And so we are seeing huge influxes of patients driving hundreds of miles from neighboring states to access the care that they need. The majority of people who have abortions are already parents. So people have to find childcare or they have to drive with their kiddos in the backseat. People have to pack a suitcase, try to get time off of work. People work jobs where their boss might not let them have the day off. People don't want to tell their boss that they need the day off so they can leave the state to have an abortion. And certainly the risk of that is, is a lot higher now, especially in states like Texas. There are people who have never been to an airport before, even to pick somebody up who now might be expected to get on an airplane and fly to a state where they've never been before in order to access healthcare. And we know that even for people who live in states where abortion remains completely legal, there are still barriers to access. There are barriers to cost. Medicaid insurance doesn't cover abortion care, which is deeply unfair and disproportionately harms women of color. We know that there are large areas of some states, rural states, areas in the mountains where you might still have to drive several hours to access healthcare. And so the idea that the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade and that everything is the same is, is frankly pretty ridiculous, right? All around us, states are banning abortion and they're criminalizing abortion. When we say abortion is illegal in those states, what does that mean, right? So what happens if you have one? It means that people are subject to investigation. It means that abortion is now a crime punishable by prison time right? and enormous fines. So Certainly, right? People still need access to abortion care and people will find access to abortion care. Some people will do that by traveling. Some people will do that via services that allow them to access those medications through the mail. And there are also a lot of people who will want to have abortions who can't have them, right? And I think that's the reality that's really hard to sit in. It's not just about travel. It's about people who right now are being forced to carry a pregnancy that they would not have chosen to carry. We have a lot of deep breaths when we're talking to our guests about abortion because thank you for sharing all of the barriers. I think when we 
have access to all of those things. It's and not every listener that we have has access to all of the ability to get on the plane, the ability to drive. It, it's just a horrifying reminder that people don't have that access and that we need to pay attention and to vote. And we're going to get into all of that later. What do you think, Jack, about the challenges of providing abortion care, even if it's like a safe haven area? In Colorado, it is still legal. Hopefully in Michigan in November, it will still be legal because we're going to vote on it. What do you think the challenge is? You mentioned the influx of patients coming. What else do you see the challenge being? I think one of the barriers that comes with travel, there's the infrastructure question, right? Which is to give you a sense of scale of the numbers of patients who might travel. There were 55,000 abortion patients in the state of Texas last year in 2021 before the ban. And those 55,000 people have to go somewhere. And to just give you a comparison, there were about 11,000 abortion patients in Colorado in that same year. Okay. Mm. And so when you think about the states surrounding Texas, right, particularly thinking about Colorado, Kansas, and New Mexico now, any health system in the country of any kind would tell you that an additional 20, 30, 40,000 additional patients is going to be a, a serious infrastructure challenge. Ask any school district in the country, can you take... Mm -hmm. 40,000 additional mm -hmm. kindergartners, right? Could the entire state of Michigan add 40,000 new dental patients, right, over the course of a year? That's a lot of new appointments. Just thinking about the time and the day and the number of providers. I think what we're seeing too, because states have made abortion illegal, is the patients who are traveling need enormous amounts of support. So it's not just about how many appointments can any given healthcare provider see, right, during a workday, people have to sleep. But healthcare providers who are now helping patients navigate what travel might look like, by that I also mean financially. So abortion funds, independent abortion funds in Colorado, we have the Cobalt Abortion Funds and the National Network of Abortion Funds. There's funds like this in many states across the country. People need support for gas, they need help buying plane tickets, they need money for a hotel, Right? If you have to travel to access healthcare, the cost of accessing healthcare also increases because you have to pay for travel. And people need support navigating what that travel looks like. People need support coming up with a plan. So I think that's part of it as well. Certainly, too, we're in a we're in a really new legal era. For the vast majority of many of our lifetimes, abortion was legal and it was protected. And the question was, what's an undue burden? So states would experiment and try to apply lots of barriers, things like forced transvaginal ultrasounds, right? Or hallway widths, things that might sound familiar from previous years. That's not what it is anymore, right? Abortion is now a crime. It's those, those questions are sort of gone. And there's this additional question of what the new precedent will be. The precedent's gone. The old precedent is gone. So over the next several years, States, both in support of abortion access and states that want to restrict abortion, are going to pass a lot of state laws trying to answer that question. What is the new framework and what is the new precedent? So those of us in safe haven states are collaborating and really in this creative space, sort of furiously drafting policies to try to answer some of those questions. California's legislative session just ended, and they passed over $200 million in funding to support abortion access in their state. They're talking about things like scholarships to train more providers. They're talking about funding travel. They're talking about money to fund care for people on Medicaid traveling from other states. I think the other 
access barrier that I'm thinking about a lot right now is this question of insurance coverage, right? I think all of us have experienced at one point or another our insurance not covering something that we needed or something we thought our insurance should have covered. It's a terrible feeling. You pay your premiums every month and and you need some healthcare and your insurance company's like you're going to be on the hook for however many thousands of dollars before you hit your deductible. That's the reality for lots of people in this country when they when they try to access abortion care for both commercial insurance plans, you know, plans we might get on the marketplace, but also for people who use Medicaid for their insurance, right? Because of the federal Hyde Amendment. And so I am not enrolled in Medicaid right now. I make enough money. I've got insurance um, through my job. And I hate when my insurance doesn't cover something that I need. But for people on Medicaid, right, finding out that Medicaid won't cover some some aspect of healthcare that you need and having to pay for that care out of pocket could be the difference between, um, you know, knowing that you can make rent and really worrying if you're going to be able to make rent. And so I think we've all had that experience with insurance not covering the healthcare we need. It's a terrible feeling. And for people on Medicaid in this country, that is what abortion access looks like, right? It looks like having to pay out of pocket. And for some states like Colorado, right, Colorado has a state funding ban. And so it doesn't just impact people on Medicaid, it impacts anyone else with um, with state health insurance, right? So public servants like teachers and firefighters and state troopers, right? Anybody who is a public servant has a, a taxpayer salary, right? And so their insurance is also blocked from covering abortion care. And so even in states like Colorado, where abortion is completely legal, it's inaccessible and unaffordable for a lot of people. Think about a school teacher in Colorado. A school teacher who's sexually assaulted in Colorado would have to pay out of pocket if she needed an abortion. And I think that the vast majority of people would agree that that is um, a really unfair and, and frankly pretty offensive policy. But that's the reality in lots of states across the country. I get very angry. Um, I get very angry and I think of like if it was 1946 and people were like, well, you can still have the Sabbath at home. Like it's just illegal if you do it. And if anyone finds out or like maybe you have to like leave to have the Sabbath, but you can be Jewish. But like you can, uh -huh. the criminalization that we're actually under, like the war, the war feeling. How, Jack, do you manage? Because you speak so calmly about what's going on and it's so important that the legislation happens. How do you channel that to make sure that the policy is impacting the outcome of reality? Yeah, it's tough. I uh, I am also furious. I think people keep asking me how I'm feeling, and I kind of keep saying, "Well, everything is terrible, but I'm feeling energized." Right? You know, I um, I write laws. I get to get rid of bad laws. I, I also run a lot of political campaigns. And between the leak and the decision, right? The the U.S. Senate unanimously passed a bill to expand security for families of Supreme Court justices, right? Unanimously, Democrats too, um, sort of responding to the loss of abortion protections by expanding the, the carceral state. And even right now, I'm reading in the news that the U.S. Senate's not actually going to take up marriage equality because they don't actually have the votes, <gasps> right? I didn't read that yet. So I, I can't just, yeah. So I can't just like sit here and tell people you know, to just vote, right? Seven out of nine Supreme Court justices were appointed by, by presidents who lost the popular vote. And I also know that majorities matter, right? The, the difference between New Mexico and Texas is that we have legislative majorities big enough to pass proactive abortion bills instead of banning abortion. And I know, right? Like I'm, I'm so frustrated with our elected officials that I, that I want to scream. And so majorities matter. And we also know that the states that are banning abortion are also states that are making it really difficult to vote. 
but I think there are some bright spots, right? So, you know, New Mexico had an abortion ban on the books from before Roe versus Wade and also had a split legislature, right? So up until 2018, the, you know, one of the chambers was held by Republicans, one of them was held by Democrats. And that was the case in Nevada and in Colorado and lots of states across the country, right? And so there's this big wave here in 2018. And a lot of those states suddenly become like trifectas, right? Where all of a sudden, you know, Democrats control all three chambers. And so New Mexico became this, this trifecta state in 2018. And they still voted. Um, several, you know, Democratic state senators voted to keep the old abortion ban on the books. And so people primaried them, right? People organized and organized their communities, and they took a lot of those folks out, right? They knocked on a lot of doors. They had lots of conversations about electing people who actually reflected our values and who represent the patients who we serve, and we won, right? We we took out those Democratic senators who had voted no. And the next session in 2021, we successfully repealed the old abortion ban in New Mexico just in time. So we're seeing now states that have abortion bans on the books from like the 1800s that are going back into effect, right? New Mexico had one of those until really recently. Uh-huh. And so I think there are bright spots there, right? So it's it's not as simple as to just um, say, you know, well, there's an election coming up, so that'll solve all of our problems, right? right? That's not no. the case. We need to organize. Um, but I also know that organizing organizing wins, right? And I think it's important too when we're sitting in that space of just feeling so despondent with everything that's going on support for banning abortion is not even 25 percent in any state of the country right texans don't want abortion to be illegal even mississippi alabama right the majority of voters in those states do not want to overturn roe versus wade and so i think that this can feel like it's a partisan issue it's not partisan in our communities our republican family members right the vast majority of people do not want abortion to be illegal in this country it's partisan in in state houses and in the U.S. in the U.S. Capitol, mm-hmm. right? But it's not partisan in our communities, and so I think that I find some solidarity in knowing that the majority of people in my community do not want abortion to be illegal, and I think that that is a place of strength from which we can organize. That even though people in our communities have lots of different opinions about abortion, the vast vast majority of people want abortion to not be a crime, and that is what we are facing in this country. And so I think that's why we're seeing such enormous backlash. I think we're going to see enormous backlash in November, right? We're seeing it already. Mm -hmm. And we know that, right? Because these policies that criminalize abortion are also racist in addition to being deeply offensive to all of us, right? So like wealthy people, white folks, those with resources and positions of power will always be able to access abortion, right? That was the Mm -hmm. case before Roe and it is the case now. The impact of overturning Roe is going to be felt the deepest by folks that are most marginalized in our political and healthcare structures now, right? Black, Latino, and Indigenous people, immigrants, people with low incomes, uh, people in rural areas, right? Queer folks. Those folks are going to face the brunt of this the worst. And I think it's also important to know that for lots of communities, right, Roe was a right in name only before this happened anyway. And so we have a lot to learn about resilience and strategy from folks for whom Roe might as well have been repealed decades ago. So the strategy now is how do we vote when the popular vote doesn't necessarily elect our leaders? How do we trust that the policymakers are sitting and handling legislation to move it up? Is it just that everything that's at the top that's ruling now has kind of been soured, toxic? It's just going to expire if we do keep organizing and fulfill new policy? Is that the hope? I think state fights are where it's at. And I'll I'll sort of predicate that by saying that your access to abortion should not depend on the state that you live in or the zip code that you live in. And we also know that the reality right now is that 
abortion is legal in some states and is a crime in other states. And so it is extremely important that we protect access in those states where care is still legal and that we flip back those states where abortion is banned. And so I don't necessarily mean by that flipping chambers of government. That's possible in some states. It's also not possible in some states, right? Wyoming is is not going to suddenly like become a blue state tomorrow. But we are seeing some states like Michigan running ballot measures, right? That's critically important. And I think a, a lot of folks are frustrated with politics. So I think it's important to think differently about politics versus organizing, mm. right? If you don't like politicians, that's great. You can still organize in your community, right? This ballot measure in Michigan, that's not politicians. That's people getting together to vote and to pass a ballot measure that says abortion is going to be legal in this state, right? And so I think there's a lot of opportunity for state ballot measures. There's a lot of opportunity for community organizing. There's a lot of opportunity to resist and fight with your elected officials. Like I said, right, I'm not going to say, you know, oh, just just go vote and this will all be fine. We have a ton of work to do in our communities around organizing. And we have a ton of work in our communities to do parallel to that around focusing on access, right? Direct access. So that looks like support for travel funds, right? That looks like volunteering with an abortion fund in your community who might be able to get you set up to drive people to and from appointments, right? If you have money, it means donating money to abortion funds to cover the cost of care for people. It means going to your HR at your job and asking if your insurance covers abortion care or not, and if not, why, right? And organizing your colleagues to push back on your on your company around that. On the one hand, I guess it's kind of nice to see big businesses saying they'll cover costs for travel for their employees who need abortion care. And on the other hand, like nobody should have to go to the HR office. Right at their job and say that they need some money, please, because they have to leave the state to access abortion care. That's not how things should work. But we also know that our reality right now is a pragmatic one and that we need to support people in all of all of the ways to be able to access the care that they need. It just seems particularly tricky if that company that you work for might somehow also be involved in some of the lobbyists that are keeping mm-hmm. the bans going. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I would not want to go to anybody at my job about any kind of health care. And I work in health care. Right. That's private. Right. Um, none of us want to have to go to HR and, and say, hey, I, I've got to I've got to go fly across the country to Colorado on Friday because I need access to abortion care. No one should have to do that. So organizing starts, it can start in the workplace, it can start in your neighborhood, it can be three people, right? It can just get started. What tips do you have for, do you have, you know, some quick tips for, for listeners in regarding to, in regards to getting into organizing where, when this is maybe something that they haven't done before. I think the first thing is always be organizing. Yeah. Be okay. the person <laughs> who everyone is annoyed with at Thanksgiving dinner. I think a lot of folks really started to get into the habit of this during the previous presidential administration and after the police murders of black and brown men, people in some cases gained a new comfort in fighting with their families about issues that matter to them. I also think there are opportunities that already exist in lots of communities. So don't feel like you need to reinvent the wheel. There are individuals and organizations who have been doing this work for decades. Women of color have been leading reproductive justice organizing in communities all over the country, including communities that I think a lot of folks who might live in coastal blue states think are so conservative, right? Mm -hmm. And you can tap in with those existing groups and ask how you can help, right? People 
know what they need in their communities. And so being a supportive ally is really, really critical. And I would kind of lean people towards that rather than feeling like you have to reinvent the wheel, right? I think that if you have money, you should give money because this is also a resources fight. Policy change needs to happen too. And a patient right now in rural Eastern Texas who needs to travel to New Mexico to access an abortion right now needs money for a plane ticket or gas. Mm -hmm. Direct aid access is critically important in this time as well. And so that organizing can also look like fundraising in your community. ABO, always be organizing. Love it. Great. I was wondering what does ABO mean? (laughs) Oh, well, you know, like the ABC, always be closing, always be organizing. And the reality reality is terrible, right? And so I think the other thing that we need to do is we need to to really sit in that and not, not stop thinking about it. I mean, there's a healthy degree of compartmentalization that each of us do on any given day so we can get out of bed in the morning with our with our current realities and in all sorts of different areas of injustice in this country. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also important to take a minute and think about the people who live in states where abortion has been inaccessible, already impossible to access for years, right? And now those states have made abortion a crime and people have to buy a plane ticket or gas up the car, pack a suitcase, you know, find a sister or an auntie or call their mom and ask if she can watch the kids for a couple of days so they can leave their home and their community and their neighbors behind to travel mm-hmm. to get the care that they need. And then also to think about people who can't travel, right? Who has an hourly job and can't get Friday off work because they live in a state with terrible worker protections right. and they can't make rent if they miss if they miss time. All people deserve access to abortion care and all reproductive health care when they need it on the timeline that they choose in the community where they live. And it's none of our business why. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to also think about people living in those barriers right now. Think about people who are incarcerated and need access to abortion care mm. in a banned state. Right. Mm. And the fact that the state is telling them that they cannot leave and they cannot get the care that they need and think about the reality of what that means. And that's not a new reality, right? The history of, mm-hmm. you know, policing of the bodies of black and brown women, especially in this country, um, is, mm-hmm. is as old as the country. Mm-hmm. And that is the lived reality for lots of communities right now. And so it's also important to sort of hold together as we go through this paradigm shift and the newness of this and the shockingness and how terrible it feels for a lot of us to also know that this has been the case for lots of communities for a very long time, yes. right? And that we have so much to learn about what to do next from communities for whom this is actually not a new experience. I mean, thank you for using the microphone on flow to help ground in how to manage both acknowledging the painful realities we're in, the painful realities that brought us here, and some hope of how policy and legislation can bring us forward. If you hate politics, you can still love organizing, and Mm -hmm. there is a way to get involved in your area. If there's any links, we'll include in the show notes, of course. What would you recommend if someone's just today hearing this and like, yeah, I do need to get involved. What do you, how do you start? Little first step. What would you recommend? I think it depends on the state where you live. Okay. Okay. If you live in a state where abortion is now a crime, you might do some really different things than somebody who lives in California, right? I think a good place to start is to Google reproductive justice organizations in your area, to Google abortion funds in your area. You may have a local Planned Parenthood chapter or an independent abortion provider in your community who's right there who you can support. Some solidarity stuff looks like, you know, buying lunch for healthcare providers on any given day, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think that work is around too. So I would start there. 
And I think you need to contact your legislators, right? And I understand, right? If Lindsey Graham is your state senator, I don't think that contacting Lindsey Graham is going to make him change his mind on abortion. But you could drive him crazy. Yeah. And you can also speak to some of your legislators who might not realize who in, in their idiocy might not have deeply thought about the impact of what this policy would be, right? Who might not have thought of what this ban on abortion means in states where people need to access IVF, mm-hmm. right? Who have not right. thought about what this means for families who get a lethal fetal diagnosis at a 20-week ultrasound. Yep. I think it's also important to push back against abortion stigma, right? And that means pushing back on the idea that all abortion care is quote unquote, the hardest decision anyone could ever make or or something really tragic. Lots of people access abortion care because they don't want to be pregnant anymore. And that's also completely fine. Yeah. Mm. And so I think it's important to resist a framework that frames some abortions as justified and some abortions as not justified. Not wanting to be pregnant is a completely valid reason to have an abortion. A thousand percent. Thank you for saying that. We do sound effects in this show. Yes, there will be claps. People have different comfort levels in sharing their abortion stories. But what we know is that around one in four women in this country have abortions before they turn 40. Also, people who are not women have abortions. So think about trans and non-marrying folks as well, right? And we all love someone who had an abortion. And because of stigma and shame and criminalization, people are often also afraid to tell their abortion stories. And if you are in a position in your life where you can share an abortion story, know that that is really meaningful. Know that that can move someone. It could give someone else the courage to share their story. And that's part of organizing too. That won't necessarily feel safe or comfortable for every person, but it's really important. It's important work. So if that feels like it's something that's accessible for you, there are definitely groups nationally and locally that can support storytelling in that way. And that can be really, really meaningful, both in changing hearts and minds in your community and your neighborhoods and also at state capitals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's empowerment in the storytelling. Of course, many stories do also come with stories of sexual assault, Mm -hmm. which makes, while the abortion might be empowering, the nature of telling and the nature of thinking about policies and legislation intertwined with with what legislation is missing to respond to the large amount of sexual assault Mm -hmm. that occurs as a crime in this country. I don't know. That's just a statement. I have no question. (laughs) I mean, the, it's truly the the care for both the reality of how it can be a casual clinical experience to abort and the fact that we can't divorce a lot of the conversation from the normalcy of sexual assault in the country that leads to pregnancy. Mm-hmm. It's a tricky place. People have abortions for all sorts of reasons, none of which are really any of our business, but certainly this abortion ban fits into a a broad and ancient paradigm in our country and and globally of ensuring that women's bodies are not their own, right? Yep. And I think viewing these abortion bans as part of that framework is an accurate way to characterize it. Mm-hmm. And so while it's not a new struggle, the struggle is very loud. What's different now? The war, the front lines have been the front lines for many years, but our attention is now a daily call, a daily call to attention. Mm-hmm. I think it's important, too, to recognize that bans on abortion aren't just about abortion and that they impact access to reproductive health care more broadly. So, for example, the health care and treatment that someone might need to access after a miscarriage is clinically identical to the care and treatment that someone might access after having an abortion. And that could look like procedural support in a, in a health center. 
It could also look like medication access to things like mifepristone and mesoprostol, mm-hmm. right? Those drugs are also used to support people who are having miscarriages to ensure that they're ensure their health and well-being then. We also are seeing states trying to ban certain extremely common and popular forms of contraception, mm-hmm. right? States going after things like IUDs, states going after emergency contraception. They're obviously not going to stop at abortion access. They're also attacking trans people in our communities, and they're going after things like gender-affirming care. And a lot of these policies could also jeopardize access to a variety of assisted reproductive practices. So thinking about states that have passed full fetal personhood laws, for example, that give independent rights to fertilized embryos, Mm -hmm. and thinking about what that means for families who go through IVF, right, who might have several frozen embryos Mm -hmm. and might know that they won't have several children and what it looks like in a state to have those embryos and be able to make decisions about what to do with them, mm-hmm. right? When a family might be might be finished having children. And because these laws are new and because these laws were written terribly and are not particularly thoughtful or well-crafted, the intention is just to be cruel. We don't have legal precedents around that yet. And so there will be subsequent court cases mm-hmm. of what families can do if they have 10 frozen embryos and know that they do not plan to have 10 children. And so the impacts of policies like this are very broad reaching. And they also allow the government to investigate our healthcare access and our medical records. Mm -hmm. They add a level of scrutiny and investigation that's really important. Abortion is illegal. What does that mean? How do you investigate someone if you suspect they had an illegal abortion? Does that look like police officers going to a medical office and demanding someone's records? Does it look like interrogating someone who's experienced a miscarriage? We will see how that unfolds. And we're seeing that already now, right, with a young person in Nebraska who has been arrested because of her Facebook messages. And so I think it's important to keep in mind, even for people who have never had an abortion, who may think that they will never need to access abortion care, who may know that they would never have an abortion, that these policies impact many, many areas of of our access to health care and are creating a new framework for investigation of people's bodies and their access to health care. And that will impact someone who might go to an urgent care because they know they're having a miscarriage, someone who's going through IVF, who is really fortunate to find out that they have lots and lots of embryos from which to choose. Mm-hmm. That health care will also be impacted by these decisions. It's fucked up, y'all. It is fucked up, <laughs> yes. I, I just, you know, the, the clinician in me, I sit and I talk to clients about sexual health and that includes abortion and IVF and miscarriages and just sitting with one client and hearing the story and the emotional impact and gosh, and that's going to, it could, let's, well, it is, right? Impacting thousands and thousands and thousands of women and families and people that, because old white men, I, I just like to blame old white men in general. And you know the majority of the majority of white women in this country voted for Donald Trump. Yep. Right? I, yeah. I mean, you that's can't leave cool. it out, right? Was it fifty-five yeah. people? Fifty-five so percent. The, the of, white supremacy fact. Yeah, it is. It's yeah. it's it's yeah. terrible, and it's awakening so many people to pay attention and to do and to follow through with the steps that we've talked about today. ABL. 
always be organizing and what can we do. We aim on Flow to be part of the organization of amplifying the good work going on, sharing with our audience, which is part of the rare bleeding disorders community, the impact on their health. And so thank you for being part of that. We appreciate the opportunity to speak with you, to learn from you, and we will include ways that folks might be able to reach out if they wanted to get involved in any of the organizations we've mentioned. If there's any way to follow you and your work, if you'd like listeners to, we'd love to include that as well. Anything else you want to say before we wrap up on flow today. Thanks for having me. Everybody deserves access to abortion care whenever they want for free. And it's none of our business. Why? Yes. Amenstration. 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 <laughs> Great. And clap. Amenstration. Okay. Mm-hmm. Bloodstream Media is more than just a rare disease podcast network. With shows on chronic pain, menstrual health, and Dungeons and Dragons, yes, Dungeons and Dragons, Bloodstream Media's got a little something for everyone. Visit bloodstreammedia.com or find Bloodstream Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram to learn more. And thanks to our sponsor Takeda for their support of Flow. Flow is produced by Bloodstream Media. Shout out to Amy Board, creative director, and your hosts, Sarah Watson and Jessica Richmond. In 2022, Flow will have new episodes the second Thursday of every month. Hey, that's the day after I start menstruating. <laughs>